We are going to be in the book of Philippians, and Philippians chapter 2 specifically, and it's always a temptation to jump in and just sort of see what does this mean for us in Buena Park, but we're not going to do that. First and foremost, before we look at what the text means for us in Buena Park, we always want to see what it meant for them in Philippi, okay? And so I'm going to give us just a a short background (coughs) on the social world of Philippi, and hopefully that'll help us experience it as the original audience experienced this text. Now, Philippi was a Roman, co- Roman colony. It was dis- established in 42 BC. While other colonies at that time oftentimes maintained their sort of Greek flavor, none of the colonies were as Roman as the colony of Philippi. This was a culture that was obsessed, hyper-obsessed, with public honor, status, and rank. Archaeologists today have dug up Philippi and found that no city has more statues and pillars that tell the world of their individual achievements. Nowhere else in the Roman Empire even compares. If they were here today, this would be the social media center where everyone is talking about what they did or who they met or what they achieved. This was the most status status symbol conscious, you know, so conscious of their status The most status symbol conscious culture in the ancient world. It's like hard to say that, okay? Dio Christostom was a Greek philosopher, and he says in the first century regarding Philippi, for the pillar, the inscription, and being set up in bronze are regarded as a high honor by noble men. For all men set great store by the outward tokens of high achievement. But not one man in a thousand is willing to agree that what he regards as a noble deed shall have been done for himself alone, and that no other man shall have knowledge of it. Meaning, there's no point in doing great deeds unless you publicize it and make sure that the world knows. And I think we can understand that everything they did back then was parading their titles, their ranks, their good deeds, everything they purchased, every time they bought, they built a fountain or a library, everything had their name on it. Even when they died, their, their funerals, their their graves would have all the dozens of little ranks and titles and positions they've held in life. Pilhofer, another historian from that time, t- says, that I take this as an indication that persons in Philippi were especially, we are especially proud to make a public display of our ranks and offices. This was an extremely hierarchical culture as well. One senator of the early second century in Philippi says that nothing is more equal or nothing is more unequal than that of equality itself. This social ladder had a name. It was called the cursus honorum. You had all these different titles. You moved from quaestor to adil, praetor, consul, and censor. And based on these social statuses or titles, you would have different clothing that marked you. You would have different seats at public events. You would experience treatment completely different from other people. Even the gods, okay, you look at the city of Philippi, you see that the little gods that were less important, they had statues that were on the outskirts of the city. While the more prestigious gods would have statues closer to the center, and at the very center of the city was a statue of the emperor, who was known as the highest god. Again, this is a society that's characterized by this Obsession for public honor. And the New Testament reinforces this picture of Philippi as a Roman settlement that had a really extremely hierarchical 
society. So in Acts 16, verse 11 through 12, Uh, it says in Acts 16, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. Now, in this chapter, Luke mentions maybe seven to eight different Roman colonies, but for some reason, Philippi is the only one that's identified as a Roman colony. Only in Philippi did Paul address... In chapter 1, in the first part of the introduction, he says, to the overseers and deacons, he addresses their titles in the opening address. Only in Philippi, or Philippians, does he list out his social honors and achievements as a Pharisaic Jew in Philippians chapter 3. Both Paul and Luke were very sensitive to the Romanness of Philippi and his social hierarchy. Now, imagine you're in this city, you're a Christian, you're not immune to these types of pressures. You have a lot of pressure to conform to this type of society, to sort of have as many letters next to your name as possible. And if you have that type of pressure, you need the book of Philippians. You need a letter from Paul. You need God's word. And so, zooming in a little bit more on the book of Philippians, imagine this. There's a city called Philippi. It's a great church. It's a very imperfect church, but overall, it's a great church. Paul has written a letter to them from prison, and he sends it through this very faithful man named Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus sends the letter, or he brings the letter, and the house church has now gathered. They're probably seated together in the inner courtyard. They have their small talk. They exchange hellos, and then an elder stands and prays, and maybe they sing a couple of hymns. There's two women in the church. We know their names, Euodia and Syntyche, and for some reason, they, didn't want to, they probably didn't sit next to each other. They're probably on opposite sides of the room. There's some kind of major disagreement between those two. And then Epaphroditus steps forward and he gives them greetings. He tells them, here's how Paul is doing and everything going on with Paul. And then he presents this letter to the elders. And then a presiding elder would then read that letter. Probably took around 15 minutes if you read Philippians from beginning to end. And then he gets to our passage for today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. If you look at that with me. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's no need for me to have a fancy outline for this one. I want to keep this as simple as possible and just four words to give us a flow of thought of this passage. God, man, slave, crucifixion. God, man, slave, crucifixion. Starting with God. He being in the form of God, being in essence God, being in nature fully God. Jesus is eternally and truly God. That's who he was before Christmas. He is in very nature God. He is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God. And that thought needs to be the anchor. That thought needs to just be in your mind. You need to write that down. Remember that. Store that in your heart. Meditate just on that simple but amazing thought. It has to stay with me. 
It has to go with you, where you wherever you're, where you're driving, whether you're shopping, that Jesus is God. And our text starts there, and that's what makes the rest of the text so amazing. If you've ever seen someone do an extraordinary act of sacrifice, the act in itself, it might be amazing, but then you hear someone next to you say, like, man, if you only knew where that girl came from, if you knew that person's backstory, if you knew how far they had come in order to be here, it's amazing what they've done, but you need to know their background. And that's what we're getting here. We're getting a divine or heaven's perspective on what Christmas is. This is the theology of Christmas. And Paul is saying here, or God is saying through Paul, you see what Christ did. You know how amazing it is. But if you knew who he was before Christmas, you would recognize just how far he has come. Just how much he has done in humbling himself. Who was Jesus before Christmas? John chapter 1 gives us another look at this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word, and this idea of the Word, he, this is Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, from the Father, full of grace and truth. I will not make any assumptions here. This is the most basic fundamental question that we might ask at this church. And Jesus asked this of his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's the question. We're not here first and foremost for community. We're here first and foremost for the Savior. Who do you say he is? Was he just a man plus a lot of other good things? A man plus other good add-ons, someone with a unique sense of the divine, someone who was, you know, he had God-given insight, the godliest man who ever walked the world, a, a devoted religious man, a humanitarian. That, this is the dividing line. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? The only right answer to that is that Jesus is God. Not anything else falls way too short. And this is not a minor part of Christianity. We need, we must have, we desperately must have a divine Savior. And if we lose sight of this, then we lose sight of everything. We've lost everything. There are more and more downsized versions of Jesus that make him just an accessory to our lives. And all of these are showing up everywhere we go, and none of these are worthy to be trusted. A godly man is not worthy of your faith. Only Jesus, who is 100% God. And if you're here to celebrate that Jesus is God, blessed are you. You are blessed. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Simon, Simon Peter replied to Jesus' answer, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I, I, I can't dissect this, but I just want you to hear that from me. If you're here to celebrate Jesus as God, you are blessed. Christian, hear that. You are blessed. The Father has drawn you to him and opened up your eyes. He has given you sight. 
Yet as God, it says, Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and made himself nothing. What does that mean? Okay. And there's all these different errant theologies that sort of revolve around this text. But he made himself nothing. He emptied himself is explained by the following two phrases. You just look at the commas. You look at the phrases right after. What does it mean that he made himself nothing or he emptied himself? It explains right after. By taking the form of a servant or slave. And secondly, being born in the likeness of men. That's how he emptied himself. It wasn't emptying by subtraction, but by assuming, by adding. And first, starting with man. Okay? And let's remember the social ladder here. This is a king of kings. This is a lord of lords. We can't just say he's higher up the scale than us. He breaks the scale. He has every title imaginable. And he now starts down the social ladder. Instead of going up the cursus honorum, he's going down the ladder. And verse 7 says, being born in the likeness of men. Homoeomati is the word there. The same as humanity. All the attributes of humanity. He became man. Truly man. Not merely man, but he was truly man. He's not like half God, half man. He's not God just masquerading as a man. He is fully God. He is fully man. And he somehow, and this is a mystery of the incarnation, he retains the properties of both in one person. He didn't like... There's theology that says he was God, and then he gave up being God, he converted into man, and then now he is converted back into being God. That is not what God, uh, the Paul is saying here. He takes on our likeness, and he'll be like that for eternity. And if you looked at him, he just had the appearance of a man. He looked like a man. He talked like a man. He didn't have some heavenly robe that like never got dirty or something. He didn't have a glow. He didn't have a halo over his head like you see in all the medieval paintings. He was a man. Was he ever hungry? Yes. Was he thirsty? You spend the day with him, you would have said, could you pass me the water? I'm thirsty. And he would say, I'm thirsty too. Give me a drink of water. Did he sleep at night? One night he was so tired, he was on a boat, he slept through a storm. Did he work? Yes. Did he relax? Yes, just like everyone else. Was he ever sad? Yes. Did he ever cry? <laughs> that song the kids just sing is the most adorable song in the world, but I, I disagree with one line in it. I'm going to be grumpy old man right now, right? The cattle are lonely, and Jesus, he did not cry. What kind of baby doesn't cry? Why would he not cry? I don't understand that. That's Jesus' way of saying, Joseph, get out of here. I need Mary, right? He cried, right? It's a great song. Don't, don't, I'm just being grumpy, all right? Like Christmas songs, I just have to die. You know, like, I'm just going to be grumpy old man right now. You know, Mary, did you know? We knew what Mary knew, Right? We know, Mary, did you know? And all the questions, it's exactly right there in Luke chapter 1. Anyways, okay. Um, I'm sorry, I just ruined some of your favorite songs, okay? But he cried. Did he ever shout in anger? Yes. He was human being. He looked like everyone else. Nobody recognized him as God. Nobody believed him because he, he looked like everyone else. Isaiah 53 said he had no form or majesty that we would that we would seek after him. John the Baptist had to go and be like, hey, that guy right there, 
That's Jesus, the Son of God. That's the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of the world. And people still didn't believe him. What did people say about him? What they actually said about him is, which one's Jesus? Which one's Jesus? He had a mom, and mom probably had to teach him his different colors. He had to learn how to speak. He learned. He grew in wisdom and stature. He had to sit in the synagogue or the church of that time. He listened to the sermon. He had to be, I love how Luke just adds that in, he had to be obedient to his mom and dad. And Mary, his mom, looks into the eyes of a 12-year-old boy and knows there's something amazing going on here. And all she can do is just say, I'm just going to treasure up these thoughts. I'm going to ponder them. I'm going to think them through. I'm going to think through the mystery of Christmas. And as a side note, fast forward to the foot of the cross. Jesus, man, he doesn't stop being an earthly son. There's something so amazing here. His mom is standing there at the foot of the cross, and she hears him on the cross say to his disciple, hey, here's your mom. Take care of him. Uh, Take care of her. And mother, here's your son. He was still an earthly son. And the eternal God through whom all things were made, made himself nothing, walking around the streets. People didn't know which one he was. And the King of kings, the Son of God, taken off his crown, he's given up his majesty, he takes off his robe, he comes out of the palace to save the weak, he doesn't choose to arrive in a fashion that would have been worthy of him, no dignity or style, there's no chariots, no palace, he wasn't born among the heads of states, he was born amongst those who were at the bottom of the social ladder, and he moved from the manger, and eventually he became slave. He didn't move up the ladder as he got here on earth. He became a doulos, which is translated slave, better translated slave. This is someone who had no rights. They had given up all their privileges, someone who had absolute and total obedience to the will of someone else. We are obsessed with titles and letters and CEO and CFO or president, and we we think of all these different titles, and we know the lowest title The most degrading, humiliating position a person could be was that of a slave. The most dishonorable public status possible. And only here in Philippians does Paul describe Jesus with this word, slave. Imagine how much that would have shocked this Philippian culture where status is everything where pride and rank and honor are everything. He gave up his privilege. He didn't exercise his own power for his own benefit. He gave up his glory. The whole point at that time, especially a power according to Roman elites, was to use that power to push other people down for your benefit. Power was a tool to gain glory for yourself, to climb up the ladder, not go down the ladder, but when we think of this idea of Jesus being a slave, it, it's, it's embarrassing. There's something about it. It's just, no, I don't do that. That's not how this should be. It feels humiliating, degrading. That's what Peter said. Like, Jesus, don't, what are you doing? You, should, you need to stop this. It's painful for this society to assign to Jesus the lowest possible point on the social ladder. One Roman emperor named Caliglia 
wanting to humiliate his leaders, made them take a towel and clean his feet, just like Jesus does in John chapter 13. Because greatness in this society is defined by how many people and how they serve you. Who you can humiliate, who you can get to submit to you. And you've probably heard of the story of John 13. Jesus is taking up the role of a slave, something that even his, his nobody disciples didn't want to do. But in John chapter 1 through 12, you see that John has been trying to convince you of this one truth, that Jesus is God. He was in the beginning. He's a prophesied conquering king, the Lamb of God, the living water, the bread of life, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the resurrection and life, and the slave who washes the feet of the lowest in society. And his glory was not his priority where he's willing to even, it, it just sounds weird, to humiliate himself. The humiliated God, which he does out of the love for those he's pursuing. Constantly moving down the ladder. And this fourth word, crucifixion, here's where our familiarity with the Bible and the gospel will keep us from seeing like the surprise, the shock of this verse. It was the fact that he became obedient to death as a slave. He became obedient. He would do the will of someone else. He became obedient to death. But Paul has to add this little phrase, even death on a cross. Paul didn't need to add that last phrase. He could have just said Jesus was obedient to death. That seems to be as far as you can go. But death is one thing, but crucifixion is a whole different thing. The first century Jew would have been horrified to think not only that my Savior died, but of the way he died. Scipio Africanus, a leader at that time, crucified a bunch of Roman deserters in Africa during the war with Carthage and was heavily criticized by his other generals saying Roman blood should never be insulted by paying the slaves penalty of crucifixion even if they deserve it. Crucifixion, by one historian says, was the most loathsomely degrading thing possible. It was known as a servile supplicum or a slave's punishment. It was how Roman elites punished slaves when they rebelled. And in a culture obsessed with honor and shame, this is the most embarrassing and shameful way to die. It was meant to be a public advertisement, a public announcement to be seen by as many people as possible. The person on the cross was seen as the scum of the universe, worse than an animal. Maximum public exposure, cursed, exposed, naked, vulnerable. He hung there. We've made the cross into this nice symbol today. But it was the opposite back then. He emptied himself. He became a man. He became nothing. He became obedient to death. He gave up doing his will. He didn't want to go to the cross. He wanted so badly to, go to, the, to not go to the cross. He prayed that. Even that, God, even that, your will be done. Voluntarily, as an act of obedience to save us, he walks into this silently. Silently, God was crucified and took on the most dishonorable public humiliation. 
not only the most dishonorable status, but the most dishonorable public humiliation. And at this time, many who believed, wanted to believe in the name of Jesus, they struggled with the idea of Jesus' dishonorable death. Why did God not choose a more honorable kind of death for his son? Why did he choose the most infamous kind of death and what they struggle with, we oftentimes focus on the, the physical pain of the crucifixion, but what they struggle with was a public humiliation. Justin Martyr, speaking in regards to how the death of Jesus was viewed at the time, said the dishonor involved in the death of Jesus by crucifixion is one of the main objections of him being the Son of God. It's what they struggle with the most. In the world, you see this in TV shows about, you know, about... Bible times today, they, they worship a crucified Savior. How would that have been received? Foolish, idiotic, so offensive, humiliating, pathetic. That's not how you use power. You must do anything you can to maintain your pride, your honor, your glory. And I think about this and like, who would have come up with this type of thing? Who could have imagined that this is God. Who would have invented that God would enter the world in this way, in a manger, as a mere man, as a slave, on the cross? Nobody could have thought this up. That God would come down the social ladder in such a humiliating way. And Paul's readers, if they're Roman, they're thinking, this is just foolishness. This is offensive. And that's how the world sees it too. The cross is foolish. It's all about moving up. Pride and selfish ambition are held in high esteem. Defend your honor. Exalt yourselves. No Roman or Greek would have ever invented this type of God. But God redefines for us honor and shame and says here that because of his public dishonor, because of his public humiliation, because of the way he humbled himself, because of the way he utilized his power, because of his service, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The world assigned Christ the lowest possible status and God assigns to him the highest public honor because he chose to humble himself. Let's think about everything I've just said, okay? This is God. This is what God is like. In all his power and majesty, which is how you should picture him, picture him in this way too, a dying man nailed to a cross, gasping for breath, and see in his death and self-humiliation the glory of God, the self-giving of God. And I could just move on right now, but let's just think about this. Soak this in before we try to apply it in our lives. This is the glory of our faith. This is, you know, like if you go to like the Grand Canyon, you don't just like drive by for like 10 seconds. Like, hey, let me just zoom by. You get out, you, you slow down, and you just soak it in. The privilege that we have 
as believers, especially as New Testament believers, the prophets of the Old Testament longed to see the day where Christ would be born. And it says they were carried along by the Spirit. They wrote about it. They searched about it. They knew a Savior was coming, but they didn't know what it would look like. It would be like anything, nothing like we've ever seen before, something we never could have dreamed of. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets, I'm sorry, 1 Peter, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he... People like Isaiah predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets like Isaiah were waiting for this. They searched the scriptures for the coming of the grace of God that would turn everything upside down. And hundreds and hundreds of years they would wait. And finally we see in Philippians 2, the day has come. And not only the prophets, the angels are watching this story unfold. They longed to look into the story, trying to understand it. They're in awe of Christmas and the gospel. How is God going to do this? How is God going to save this broken and stained people and yet maintain his holiness? And they see God, they see him diving, they see him plunging into self-humiliation, completely humbling himself. You know, we get humbled, right? Things humble us. Life humbles us. Christ doesn't get humbled. He humbled himself. God is never humbled he humbled himself and took on the place of a, or took on flesh. He became a slave and died the most humiliating death. And the angels are watching all this and they see how God has become man. And then they see you and they see me. And the moment where my eyes were open to my sin, when you first heard the story of the gospel and your heart opened up to the grace of God, and I could just imagine they're longing to look at this. They're just sort of nudging each other. They're sort of like, hey, come around. What is happening here? Look at this. Gather around. What's happening next? And then they see life. And they rejoice and they long to look into this story of God entering into our lives to save us. And if I'm so familiar with this story that it no longer impresses me, I'm in a dangerous place. We know familiarity for us as believers might be the biggest enemy. We're so privileged. You are blessed. And you need to see what I just talked about with heavenly eyes and an eternal perspective. The angels and the prophets long to understand the grace that is now ours. There's this one song, I don't know how accurate it is, but it talks about how the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. But when we talk about our salvation, they fold their wings because they have never experienced personally the joy of our salvation. 
And I suppose that could be the main application. But what was Paul aiming at in this passage? In giving Jesus the name above all names, which is Lord, God completely redefines for us what is true honor and shame and what it means to have real life. The pathway to glory that we have to admit we so often take, that we so often believe is through self-promotion. It's not through self-sacrifice. Here, it's by denying yourself, taking up your cross, following after him. In Christianity, the way up is the way is first to go down. It's the towel before the throne. It's suffering that leads to glory. Repentance is the way to move forward. It's the humble and broken that God will exalt. And so let's go back to this picture in Philippians, the Philippian church. They're daydreaming about how they can achieve glory. They're daydreaming about how they can get letters on their grave, how they could put all these titles next to their name. They're daydreaming about all the different ways that they can gain success in this world. Obsessed with uh, uh, reputation and honor and status. I don't like the way that person in the town center talked about me. I don't like how Euodia spoke to me that one day. They're so bothered by any offense to their glory. This person didn't recognize my glory. And the elder had just spoke about Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. And right before that, he said, if there's any encouragement in Christ, brothers, beloved Sisters, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In contrast to the society around us, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind, which was in Christ Jesus. And I can only imagine, but my guess is the Philippian church, they're sitting there, they're in all the glory of Christ that has been revealed to them. The Holy Spirit is speaking to them, and little by little, they're being changed under the ministry of the word. They're more willing to deny themselves, to offer themselves as a living sacrifice. Euodia and Syntyche sitting on different sides, they realize how foolish it is for them to be unwilling to be the one to first apologize. And the Spirit opens their eyes to the glory of Christ. Maybe they had heard it before and they had seen this story before, but now they're worshiping. They realize how upside down it is to defend their honor when Christ gave up his. They understand that by trying and obsessing over their glory, they are shamefully taking away from his. Are there rivals? Are there rivals? There's no rivalry or selfish ambition when you look at the cross. There's no sizing one another up. There's no macho Christianity. We deny ourselves, kill our desire to glory in ourselves, and we glory in Christ because all that other stuff, all those other titles, everything that the world will deem as significance and success is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. 
completely upside down from what the world values. None of this is intuitive to me. None of this comes natural to us. I want so badly to sit on the throne, to ascend to heaven, to establish my throne, to sit on the mount, to make myself like the most high. And what I'm doing at that moment is I'm actually taking the quickest path to becoming like Satan. Satan was the highest of angels. His name was Lucifer. He was, a, he was in a very high place, but that wasn't enough with him. He wanted to grasp equality with God. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 14 describes this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. He wanted equality with God. He wanted to grasp it. He wanted to snatch it. And instead, he was instantly cast out and turned into the devil or Satan. And there's an immediate application there for us. Quoting one pastor named Tim Keller, the fastest way to become like Satan is to try to become God. The fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. I want so badly to hold on to my equality, to hold on to my status, to hold on to my privilege. We're all, we're, if you're believe, we're all equals. There's no Jew or Gentile. There's no male or female, rich or poor, slave or free. Galatians 3.20 says we're all of equal status before God, equal in value, equal in personhood. But instead, I still look at my wife. I still look around me. I still look at my kids. I still look at my church. It's like I want to grasp my equality. I want so badly to hold on to my status and honor And what we are called to do is to empty ourselves for one another, to give of ourselves for the benefit of another, to love one another as Christ loved the church. Church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul wasn't just trying to give us a theology of Christ, as glorious as that was. He's trying to work that out in your lives, in your heart, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Think about it. Mary sets a good example for us. Ponder it. Treasure it. Meditate on this. Think about how low Christ went. And the lower he went to save us, the higher we should lift him up in worship. This passage starts with God. And then he moved down the ladder. He humbled himself. He humiliated himself. But the passage ends with him being Lord. He is God, and he is Lord. Such a basic question I'll ask you, but how are you doing with the Lord? How are you doing with the Lord? Is he God? Is he Lord over your life right now? That's what we want you to know at this church. Philippians 2 says that one day, every tongue will confess on heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, which is hell. Every tongue will confess, no matter where you are in eternity, one day, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's my prayer and the prayer of our church that this Christmas, every tongue in this room, every soul that can hear the message of Christ, that you will experience how God humbled himself for you. That you will taste and see that the Lord is good. And you will confess here on earth that Jesus is Lord and you'll continue to do so. We'll continue to do so forever in heaven. If that's your confession, say amen. Let's pray. God, it's our prayer that every person who hears this message would confess that you are Lord and believe in your heart and their hearts that Jesus rose from the dead. It's our, confession, it's our hope that everyone here will proclaim you as Lord before it's too late. And like Jesus, we want to follow, we want to deny ourselves, we want to pick up our cross. But on our own, we're so selfish. But God, we, want, we pray that you would open our eyes to the glory of Christ and our selfish ambitions would die, that we would humble ourselves for the good of one another, that in the church that we would value those, we would honor not status and significance and riches and beauty, but rather we would honor self-denial, dying to oneself, humbling oneself, and in doing so, that our values would be completely opposed to the world. God, I pray that our church would taste and see that you are good. If we're having a hard time trusting you, uh, that we would see that you would love us to the end, even to death on a cross. And if you would do that for us, 2,000 years ago, we know we could trust you today. So thank you for the glory. The, it, the, this passage is hard to read, but we see the glory in it. And I pray that Christ, you would be our glory, especially in this season. So thank you for our church. Thank you for revealing to us that you are the Son of God. That is by your grace. And Lord, may we understand that we have received every spiritual blessing in heaven, that we are so blessed. We are so blessed. So we thank you, we praise you, and we want to lift up the name of Jesus, and we will proclaim him faithfully to an unbelieving world, that Christ, you died, you rose again, and you have been exalted. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.